Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. This week I'll be talking with Brian Gronoller, who recently published Rhetorical Economy and Augustine's Theology with Oxford University Press. Um, so this will be a conversation on, uh, kind of an in-depth conversation on Augustine's background, the kind of things that he was reading, and what influenced and shaped his thought, uh, especially as it relates to rhetoric. So the study of um, of how one speaks well before people, which Augustine was a teacher of, um, and which he, in some fashion or form, basically was his whole life, um, although he was a, a preacher in the church, not necessarily a public speaker um, in front of crowds like he did before the emperor, um, as he talks about it in Confession. So, uh, Brian kind of helps us think through why uh, understanding his background can help us read his theology better. Uh, you'll notice about halfway through the conversation uh, that there's kind of a, a break, um, and then um, uh, Brian kind of comes back on and apologizes. So we we recorded this podcast over two sessions uh, because he had an emergency and had to leave. Um, he is fine and everything's okay. Uh, but uh, yeah, so so it does. There's that little point in the middle. So just be aware of that. Uh, sorry for the delay and getting out a new podcast. Uh, it has been a busy semester as always. Um, and uh, and Grant, who has been working with me, is away at Oxford. Um, so um, so yeah. So it's basically just been me, and I haven't had the time that I would like uh, to devote to the podcast. Uh, we did have a really uh, gracious uh, review on iTunes. Someone, uh, the right speed, says this is such a great intro to history of theology. Does a great job of introducing primary sources and tying that to modern church practice. Uh, so I just want to thank that. Uh, thank thank him uh, or her uh, for their comments uh, so if you wouldn't mind give us a rating and review on itunes um i'm given to understand that it helps people find the show um but uh yeah so uh, sorry for this long intro but uh we have our conversation with brian coming up here and we will we've got some more coming up on uh on the show uh we'll talk with someone about violence in the old testament we'll talk about uh worship we've got a few different things that are in the hopper um but but those will be a few a few weeks out um so thanks for listening and here's my conversation with Brian. Today on the show, I've got with me uh, Dr. Brian Gronewaller. Uh, Dr. Gronewaller has, I'm not, every time, I, Gronewaller. Am I saying that? Gronewaller, right? yeah, it's, it's, it's spelled with an O, but it's it's pronounced like it's an A. At least in oh. my family circles it is. So I'm okay. not sure how the other Gronewallers pronounce it. So. Okay, Gronewaller. Uh, rhetorical Economy and Augustine's Theology with Oxford University Press, uh, and that was in 2021. I came across Dr. Gronewaller's book, Brian's book, uh, because I was, you know, I do research on Augustine, and I was like, oh, this is interesting. Someone who's taking seriously uh, Augustine's rhetoric um, in his um, theological uh, framework, and so I just wanted to, t I, I actually reached out to Brian uh, to ask him some questions, and then I realized, hey, we should just have a podcast uh, where I talk to him. And as we've gotten to know each other, uh, turns out we are very similar in any number of ways. Um, and he has a passion for Latin and living Latin. He is uh, Presbyterian, um, and I go to Presbyterian church now. And so I, you know, it looks like we've got a whole a whole host of uh, commonalities. So um, yeah, this will. Not be for the faint of heart. If uh, you know, for those of you who are not deep in Augustine, uh, this might be a hard one. But uh, I'm going to enjoy it. I know that. Well, we'll do our best. But no, thank you for having me a lot. I just appreciate um, you taking an interest in in my work, and really anybody taking any interest in it. It's uh, and when you do academic work, it's you're kind of out on your own for a long time, and so it's uh, it's fun when other people join you uh, yeah. on it. So so yeah. Well, let's. Uh, I think we'll go. We'll go with the like more heart of the book, and then um, I would like eventually to backtrack a little bit of how you came to um, Augustine. But let's let's just start right in. Um, yeah. So, you know, how um, can you give a brief synopsis of how rhetoric helps us understand theology in Augustine? Like, what? Why is rhetoric uh, kind of one of your entry points into um, analyzing Augustine's thought? Yeah, I mean, the, the the simple answer to that would be because you know he he was a, a rhetorician or an orator, however you'd like to say it for um, for so long. He spent so many years of his life training, and we know how um, training kind of comes up with you: songs that you've memorized, ways of doing things that you do. I know the students I teach now 
that are even in their thirties and forties uh, and fifties, some of them at, at the master's level, they, um, when I have them write papers, it's funny because sometimes I'll explain exactly what I want in the paper, but they just write the same kind of paper that they've been used to writing from way back when they were in elementary and, and uh, you know, middle and, and high and, and, and college. And so they have these memories and these kind of ways of being and ways of living that they've developed. Um, and Augustine, for, you know, as everybody knows, for a significant portion of his life was um, a, a public speaker, was, you know, was a rhetor, taught it, um, was just very gifted at it. You know, that's what got him um, all the way to Rome. And then Milan was just this, this talent. Um, and so when he becomes a, a Christian, um, you know, along the way, everybody kind of knows he picks up, uh, you know, Manichaeism. Um, so he's looking into different religions. He defends Manichaeism for a while. Then he, then he, um, he reads the books of the Platonists, which are really discussed a lot in his journey. Um, and theology and philosophy have always been really, kind of tied together in a lot of ways. And so when you, when you study, as you know, um, Chad, when you kind of work through how, you know, when, you, when you're becoming a scholar on this, right, you read just lots and lots of, of, of the Bible, of course. You read lots and lots of scriptural interpretation by the earlier Christian authors, like, you know, where would Augustine be getting certain ideas? You know, he might be getting from Ambrose, like his, with his Christology, he gets a lot from Ambrose. Um, and you just kind of learn all these different things um, then with philosophy, right, you know, at first, you know, you, all this Platonist stuff that he might be using from Platonism, then Stoicism becomes really popular uh, with the study of Augustine. And now you get to, um, and I was just wondering at one point, I was like, you know, where's the rhetoric come in? Because most of the rhetoric seems to come in on how he forms his speeches, which would make sense. It's how speeches are formed. Um, but... Um, Really, for me, sorry to get back to your original question. That was just yeah. a lot of throat clearing to get to the point yeah. where, right. no, no, where no. Uh, you know, I, it, I think if you want to understand him more fully, which I think is the goal, uh, we have to kind of add rhetoric to this because it was an important part of his life. He continues speaking for the rest of his life, of course, uh, through his sermons, um, and, and not that rhetoric is dominating him or he's making you know Christian ideas or his theological ideas uh, bow to the ideas of rhetoric, especially, con or especially consciously that he's doing that. But there's just forms and patterns and ways of thinking that he's going to bring from that world into uh, his world of uh, kind of as he's constructing his different theological points of view, as he's constructing his interpretations of scripture. And so I, I think, you know, I don't know that studying all of rhetoric would help you. I'm not sure that becoming a rhetorician is necessary. I don't think that one has to memorize Quintilian. Um, you know, uh, God bless the person who tries to do that. There's a lot in Quintilian. It's very long. Um, or, or, you know, Cicero. But, you know, we know Cicero's impactful on him. We know he brings some of Cicero's Stoic philosophy, you know, with him. Or at least he uses Stoic models to think through things. Um, so it would make sense that he's also do, using other models to think through things. Um, so, yeah, so really my book is just, I think, in one sense about one way in which uh, understanding one thing, like this one concept from rhetoric, which is rhetorical economy, helps us to understand Augustine's thought in several different areas, mm -hmm. uh, if that makes sense. Um, so it, it's funny, I'm trying to sift through my head as I'm answering this, like the, the book itself is so tied to <laughs> how I got to it, how I came about it, what I became interested in. Um, because I am very much, you know, interested in theology. I came, uh, actually, my original goal was to study, um, kind of to, to sift more through Augustine's political thought. Um, mm. and I, I, political theology would be the term, but political theology sometimes means something today that it didn't mean back then. But <laughs> it's theology as it related to politics and nations and states and how Christians should act within them. That's kind of what I went to do my PhD with uh, uh, in at uh, when I, when I went to Emory and I kind of just stumbled on the rhetoric stuff during one of my doctoral qualifying exams. Um, mm. And it just really, really was interesting to me. <laughs> so, so yeah, so that's, um, so I, I think to understand him, you have to understand, like if, if you're missing rhetoric, at least you're possibly missing a whole world or a whole uh, genre, like a whole world of literature in which there are some answers to, you know, this is interesting. Why does Augustine do this instead of that? Um, why does he explain the scripture this way instead of that way? Uh, what's the logic he uses behind that? Um, and I think there's more 
there than there is just in the, you know, here's how rhetoric says you should construct a speech. So look at his sermon. Like, therefore, we see why he does the sermon this way, which is yeah. uh, is often, at least traditionally, been um, not the only way, but but by far the most dominant way in which um, rhetorical evidence has been used in the study of Augustine to better better understand him. Um, the yeah. other one is, is of course, by far, I'm, I'm putting in that scriptural interpretation, uh, exegesis hermeneutics. It's been used that way, too, because the other thing with rhetoric, right, is that for a lot of folks, texts are just written speeches. So the construction mm -hmm. of a text and the construction of a speech kind of go hand in hand. Um, yeah. And I was trying to move beyond that to more... Um, you know, how it was guiding the thought, him, the thought, his thought itself, not just the way in which he was wanting to portray his thought or the way in which he was taking the thought of Paul and interpreting yeah. the thought of Paul according to how a, 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 uh, a rhetor would do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and that's, I think that's what makes your, uh, your work interesting is you, you come to realize, uh, I mean, not not just in your work, but but when you you read a little bit about ancient rhetoric, that it is ultimately a ki a way of thinking. Like you know, we tend to you know say that philosophy is about thinking, um, but but the the hard thing when you go back to the ancient world, like we you know you use the phrase political theology. Uh, well, you know that's not a construction that Augustine would know. Um, and, uh, so you, you know, and really theology, theologia is, has a very specific kind of meaning, um, that, that is not how we, you know, broadly speaking, how we talk about theology today. So there's always this yeah. difficulty of trying to, uh, exactly pinpoint, well, what is Augustine doing? Um, yeah. and, uh, and, and so is it, is it a rhetorical thing? Is it a philosophical thing? Should we still classify him as a theologian? Because that's yeah. how, you know, he would seem to us. Um, I, you know, so I think, you know, and, and hopefully we can get, dig into this a little bit, but you are able to bring some of these like structures and the architectonics of rhetoric, um, and show how those things, uh, help, uh, Augustine, view the world um and and view scripture yeah. uh because of because of that those kind of patterns of thinking yeah well i remember I was, uh just something that you said that made me think of this is is the way that augustine doesn't conceive of things the way we do nowadays one of, one of the things he doesn't conceive of it is the way like a university is set up and i remember i was sitting in the library uh pitts the library at emory um shout out to them i, I everybody at pitts is awesome i love that library and and its staff but it um it, I was sitting there one day and I was like, you know, how do I explain? Because I was trying to explain what I was doing to certain people and they were like, yeah, but but isn't that... And and they were trying to explain, you know, philosophy over here, theology over there. And like you said, not just theology proper, but just, the, you know, theology as a whole, the way we think we can see it. And I was trying to, like, explain the way that Augustine sees the world. And I was like, you know, you know, in, in Augustinian, the study of Augustine, we have, like, the BR65 section. Like, that's where the theology Augustine texts go. In the library, but then you have the B section, right? Which is you might get well. This book is deemed to be Augustine, but philosophical, so it's in just the B section. And then there's other sections you have to run to sometimes within a library. And then on Emory's campus, at least, not all this stuff would necessarily even be in one library. Like sometimes I had to run over to a completely different library to get a work because the way we kind of think through things now, the way we kind of organize ideas now. Um, is is a model that he didn't think through where to him it's all like meshed together and integrated and yeah. so for him like to have a philosophy department over there and maybe like in the modern world a communications department um, which would be part of rhetoric or maybe a law school which is kind of another part of rhetoric <laughs> you know to have these all in different places is just odd because to him it kind of all integrates not that they're all you know not different you know he, he understood mathematics is different than than some other things, but to him, it, it all integrates. And so part, I remember when I was, I, I, I think I, at least it's been a while since I've even looked at the book, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure I left it still in the introduction, just kind of being like, you know, this is an us problem, not a him problem, because for him, it's all together. And, and we kind of have to like get out of our modern mold and kind of recognize that. Um, I just remember sitting in the library and thinking about it and having that aha moment of like, Oh, Oh yeah. Like this is it. This is the problem is, <laughs> is the way we, we organize um, knowledge nowadays, right? Because is Plato, you know, Plato's Phaedrus, is it, is it philosophy? Certainly. 
is it theology? I mean, you know, there there is, you know, like gods show up, you know, gods show up throughout Plato's work. Um, and so, you know, even the philosophy theology distinction, I think, is really um, fraught, I guess, the way we yeah. think through it nowadays. Um, so, yeah. Well, um, so one place... Um one place that you kind of uh, maybe we could drill in and sort of see how rhetoric affects his thought uh, was on on your cha final chapter was on theodicy, um, and so uh, it was so you know one of these like perennial difficulties in theology is the problem and and really it's a <laughs> there we go again right uh, it's a problem that goes back to philosophy um, and and so it goes back to Plato right the 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 euthyphro yeah. dilemma um, and so you can. And, you know, you could basically trace this question uh, far back before people thought about theology as its own discipline. Nevertheless, uh, sort of theodicy is this question of a, of a good, uh, we have a good God and, and evil, and how do these work together? Um, and you try to show how, how rhetoric uh, can kind of uh, help Augustine think through how this is even possible, or, you know, maybe not a perfect solution to theodicy, but at least, like, uh, we see the, the evidence of his rhetorical training in his exposition uh, of, of this problem. So could you say a little bit about how rhetoric works for him there? Yeah, I think... Um... I'd love to. I, the hard part is I, I might have to explain a little bit about how it works in the other things because the the evil part um, chapter and you picked up on it. The, the evil chapter, the, the you know I, I'm calling it the evil chapter. It's chapter. <laughs> it's the, the last chapter. Um, it's the chapter that was the most fun to write. Um, it's okay. also the shortest, so it's the fastest to read um, yeah. for anybody. But that's the chapter I'm always. If people are like, well, what's it about? Like, what's something interesting? I'm always like, oh yeah, chapter five. That's that's the that's the good one to read. Um, but so there's there's this concept called economy in rhetoric, which of course oikos is the Greek for house, and an economia in the Greek, of course, would be you know like what a well a well ordered thing, like like how is the house to be ordered, and this is a pretty common in in ancient thought is is how the house is to be ordered, then you know is maybe how we order other things. So it shows up in um, uh, in Quintilian, particularly. You get this. Um, well-ordered uh, speech, right? That, and, and so he comes across, like, how do we order speeches? Um, and, and, and order kind of is this weird thing that a, a well-ordered something can hit both at the level of um, the broad level of ideas. Mm -hmm. um, so, like, you know, I'm going to order, I'm going to put this movement before that movement, but it also hits the, at the order of words, right? So, mm -hmm. like, uh, when you get down into the minuscule, of like, am I going to put this word before that word or after that word? What brings the most impact for what I want to say? And so, so you get these things that are considered economically arranged, or, ec um, yeah, economically ordered or um, an economic, economically arranged speech. And, and so Quintilian is trying to get this idea into the minds of people, and it seems to be something that is there that are, is kind of something everyone's aware of, that... Um, I, everyone is way an overstatement. I know as an academic, not to say that a lot of people <laughs> seem to be aware of it in, to various degrees, which is, yeah. is the better truth. Um, and so you have this, this idea of arranging. And so when Augustine starts to face questions of, uh, or, or starts to think through um, ideas of God's, we, we might use providence. Um, we might use, um, at some point, Augustine, of course, affirming predestination, uh, when Augustine's trying to think through the way that God has ordered things, we see what, what you'll start to see is you'll start to see Augustine to explain the way it's done. Augustine believes that it's done, but the way he the way he explains it is he seems to pull in this rhetorical concept of economy and apply it to God and God's arrangement of kind of everything. So, um, so to get us there, he. Um, <laughs> Sorry. I kind of go in, in order to kind of talk about how Augustine uses that idea in um, in, his, in in like creation, like top to bottom, and then history, kind of first to last, uh -huh. in a sense. Because um, and I, the book is meant to kind of just show, like, look, look. There's a lot of examples. I'm going to give you like two or three deep readings that show you it's in his thought on time, and it's in his uh -huh. thought or, or history. I think is what I call it. Not meaning what Augustine meant with history as a genre of literature, but like history meaning all that ever was or is or will be on the timeline. 
Um, and then creation, meaning kind of all that is, kind of yeah. in, a, in a slice or in a moment. Um, and so, uh, so anyways, what I started to find is when he's trying to, like, how does God order everything the way he wants it top to bottom? Even if you go back to Genesis, Augustine sends to use this rhetorical concept of arrangement to explain it. Like things are fitting toward each other in certain ways. Even if we can't figure out how they're fitting to each other, to God, they make sense. And so he arranges them all in, in a way that makes sense at the moment, that's the best in the moment, even if we don't know why, um, that we can't understand it. Why? Well, it's because, and, and you know, he pulls on um, architectural examples and other examples, like we're a statue in a temple and we just can't see how the rest of the temple's organized. Or we're yeah. a syllable in a speech and we just don't know how the rest of the syllables go. We can't even see that the whole thing is beautiful because in the part it looks ugly especially uh -huh. in moments when we're suffering and things like that, just in the way in a speech you might use an ugly word or you might use an ugly something because that actually ugly word actually makes the whole thing beautiful, but you have to wait to consider it as a whole. Yeah. And so, so when he thinks through that with creation, for instance, there's this thing in my head I'm trying to keep in mind to mention. Maybe I should just stop and give a parenthetical um, mention here. Um, what Augustine does with rhetorical economy is not so different from what happens with the Trinitarian debates. Mm. Uh, and this does not make it in my book, but um, a way to explain it is there's a difference between believing something and ex being able to explain it. Yeah. And so we see this with like Justin Martyr who has like, if you read Justin Martyr's text, he seems to affirm a Trinity but um, as like my advisor Anthony Brigman kind of points out in one of one in his first book, like, but Justin um, can only explain a ability, if that makes sense. He can only explain that, and and you get these problems over the first couple hundred years of, of Christian theology, where nearly nearly everyone, not everyone, affirms a Trinity. They affirm like this, but they can't explain it, and so the problem comes down to explaining it. Yeah, And it takes them hundreds of years, you know, and then it takes them from 325 when they think they get it right, you know, until 381 to really kind of get, well, this is as much as we can explain. We can't explain any more than that, but this is what we have in the, in the, yeah. in the version of the Nicene Creed we have now. Um, that's kind of what the usefulness of rhetoric is in the same way that use, the usefulness of philosophy can be when you're like, okay, I believe this to be true in scripture and scripture might not tell me too many of the hows or it might hint at some of them. But this idea I take from somewhere else actually provides a structure by which I can weave together all these scriptures that seem to be giving me little hints, yeah. and, and, and therefore I can now explain it. So I probably should have started with that just to kind of be like, well, why is this useful? It's useful in this way in that we get like logical models we pull and we use to explain things. In the same way we do nowadays, we just don't recognize often that we're doing it. Yeah. Um, and for most Christian authors, and for Augustine especially, they're trying to do it in a way that is faithful to the scriptures but then explains the scriptures. So they don't want the model to kind of overrun the scriptures. And it can for certain authors. When we read that, it can happen. Um, and, and right, it comes down to the question of when is there a good synthesis and then when is syncretizing going on, right? When is, yeah. and you know, one is kind of bad and one is kind of okay and fine and, and, and often good. Um, so moving back to Augustine, uh, what we see is he'll explain um, uh Creation is a text, right? Creation is a book. And he actually refers to creation as a book a few times. And, and working with this, um, oh, I hesitate to use the word analogy because it's such a loaded word. Um, but, <laughs> but, it may be, yeah, but it's not just an illustration because the illustration itself actually contains, if you look more deeply into the illustration, it contains the actual logic. It's somewhat in the way that Plato's cave, right? It's an illustration, but it also contains what he's trying to say about education within yeah. it. So it's not just an illustration, so to speak. It's not merely, I guess, in that sense, an illustration. But there's more to it. There's actually, there's meat to it. Yeah. Um, the meat is actually in the illustration, so to speak. So when you, when you get rhetorical economy, what you do is first you see that he's talking about creation as a book. And so he talks about how all things are well arranged by God. They're ordered in the way they should be, right? Um, and you can go back into philosophy and you see certain things in philosophy also, right? Like the human's head is on top of the body. Augustine will talk about how the body itself is well arranged, and, and he'll be he'll be going from there, and he'll be using um, both philosophical and rhetorical sources, kind of in the way he thinks through that. Um, but he comes to this kind of well arranged thing, like things are arranged the way they should be, 
And so when he's trying to explain how God is in control of all that is from creation onward, that it's perfectly arranged. In fact, it's the most economically arranged thing ever mm-hmm. to a humanity that looks at it and goes, this thing is way out of sorts. You know, he's yeah. trying to explain it. Well, he uses this model to say, okay, here's how it's well arranged. These little pieces go together and it's, it's not even been thought through at just the little pieces level, right? Like fish are in water because they breathe water. So look, behold, they're in water. Um, <laughs> you know, things go where they should go. He moves on from there then to say, okay, so the history, he'll talk about history as a speech. Well, speech is, right, a text is just another form of a speech in the ancient world. Mm -hmm. So he's doing the same thing. He talks about how things are there. The funny part with the speech, though, is when when he starts to talk about history as a speech, he starts to recognize how things look different, right? And so if you get into Augustine's theology, our temporality is a huge part of it. And part of our temporality is the fact thing that we're in state, we're unstable, right? Our instability is a huge part of that. And so eventually with the, the evil chapter, you get to get into with a will and how the will is that way. Um, but he's just kind of talking about everything possible that you could possibly talk about in creation is not only perfectly arranged or economically arranged, right, in creation on this one axis, but on the axis in which it moves through time as everything is changing in a way that humans can't understand on a second to second or millisecond to millisecond basis. Yeah. the entirety of creation, he is affirming that, that God is provident over all of that. And then he's trying to explain, well, you know, well, how? Yeah. And his explanation there gets a little more interesting because you just can't possibly see things in the future, right? And we don't know things from the past. Um, and so how can all this stuff work, especially when you get to really awful things? You know, how does that, or really good things, or hey, how does this person who right now seems like really a classical, a classic problem, uh, John Chrysostom brings it up in his sermons, you know, what uh, on Lazarus and the rich man, like, well, what about this person who seems like they've got a great life right now and nothing's ever gone wrong for them? And Augustine has kind of whole, the, the whole like, well, just wait. And then the just wait extends to eternity. Like, well, just wait and maybe wait longer. But yeah. you'll see that everything fits together the way it should Everything fits together with the way that God's built the universe. Everything fits together with the way that God says that the universe should, and I'm using universe here just to kind of mean everything, that is, was, will be, in in whatever moment there, and it it will all fit together perfectly. You just kind of have to move out from this tiny version of whatever you see to being able to see all of it. And so it all fits together. And then he, he brings in different ideas like antitheton. He brings in other ideas um, throughout it from rhetoric to explain how certain things that seemingly don't fit together do. And so it really kind of opens up his thought in that sense. Um, so yeah, yeah, sorry. I feel like I've been monologuing for a bit, no. so I need to uh, stop. But, but that, that just kind of gets us up to the evil. Um, and so, uh, so yeah. <laughs> so, one of the things that I was, I, I was just trying to pick out something from your book that could kind of, you know, a, a perennial problem uh, that Christians have, which is how do we talk about theodicy? How do we talk about evil? Um, and I have another question that I want to ask you actually about um, uh, Augustine's education and what that means for his understanding of philosophy. Yeah. Um, that's a more sort of technical historical question. Um, but, um, it, it, it actually came up in a sort of a back and forth exchange I had at a conference paper once. Um, and so I was just going to get your own kind of take. Um, but, um, cause, cause actually, cause what you're trying to do in the book, one of the things that you're trying to show, um, is that sort of framing Augustine within his rhetorical education um, can help us see um, what he's up to, right? So when he's trying to think through um, how do we view the problem of evil, how do we view God's relationship to the universe and to evil, um, if we understand what he's doing in rhetoric and and some of the things that he's using are order and fittingness and some of these other kind of rhetorical phrases, if you understand uh, uh, how they work in that kind of language, um, it yeah. can it can you know give us a different perspective on the problem of evil. So that was I was just trying to make that kind of connection to um, Augustine's thought, um, like, and what why is that a helpful way? You know, um, both for Augustine, uh, or and maybe why did he think that would be a useful thing for for the people that he was writing to? Yeah, um, yeah. to understand evil. 
in that way. Yeah, no, that's um, that's probably great. So, so if we can, yeah, if we're starting from that point, that's fantastic. I'm glad we're able to use yeah. whatever we had started. And and if if anybody's listening to this, um, just so they hear me say it to you, thank you for letting me go. I had a family emergency I had to run to, so it's been about a month at this point, or maybe a little less than that. But um, we're finally back to it after the holidays. But thank you for your understanding with that. Sorry, we had to break no problem. Um, yeah. So with, with Augustine, like, um, from a position of someone of faith, for instance, like the reason to understand for me, um, and for most folks, like, so like, why do we do this with historical theology is to understand what a historical person said better. Well, why do we do that? Well, we do that because that historical person, uh, especially in theology is trying to interpret the Bible. And so the, really the end game is how do we understand the scriptures better? so that we understand God better, so that we understand our, ourselves better. And so we're searching for little nuggets there. And with Augustine, it's kind of like doing Shakespeare, right? If you're doing a literature degree, like you pick someone who's been picked through uh, with a lot of things. And so um, I know I talked last time about rhetoric and how rhetoric hasn't been picked through it as much. Um, but um, but yeah, so I, so I found this idea of economy as just like a, uh, a logical model by which Augustine could explain how something, how, how something that is um, various and up and down and good and bad and all this stuff like can be ordered together into a speech or a book. And, and he'll talk about, um, uh, at least another part of my book, I get into um, the concept of antitheton, which I, I on purpose talk about it as antitheton and not antithesis, although it, that mm -hmm. is one of the translations of it because um, he is doing some stuff like you might see with antithesis, but he's not quite doing the same thing all the time as what people might hear when they hear antithesis. But he, You don't want to connect him to Hegel? Yeah, no, oh, yeah well, you know, Hegel's a little later, but yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah totally. um, but, but right, like we have, words have meanings for us now that they didn't necessarily have like, they're like, the people, if they're listening to this, won't know, but before we were talking about analogy and like, what does analogy mean now versus what it meant, you know, to Thomas Aquinas versus what it meant, you know, in the 100s. Um, and so you just have different, like who meant what by what when, um, but people don't think through that whenever you say a word now, they just, it's, it's what they know it as. Um, and, and even scholars, right? Even a scholar of the Reformation would hear something different than a scholar of medieval theology, than a scholar of patristic theology, than a scholar of, of systematics or scholar of modern. Um, and so I think that's hard, but, um, but one of the things I found, I guess, um, and I think you were really insightful to pick up on it and the most fun chapter, which I, I think I said this last time, just to reiterate, like, like for me, it was like my most fun chapter to write was the fifth chapter, which is the chapter on theodicy, because what it seemed like to me and, and what I argue in the chapter is that, uh, it was pretty well known, um, that Augustine, uh, scholars have kind of worked out certain things about how Augustine works out, so, like um, like certain Gordian knots and stuff. I think I use the phrase Gordian knot even in his theology. Um, and so <clears throat> Augustine has these kind of two antithetical understandings. One, one is that God has created everything, right? Like he, he, he affirms ex nihilo creation. So he created, right, created Satan, which is, of course, a classic theological problem right so if, and and so augustine holds this idea that god created everything and at the same time he holds that god's not the source of evil right like you know satan like, you know or or, or <laughs> murder like he created humans and humans murder so how has god not the creation like so god is in one sense the um chronologically prior but not the producer of these things and so augustine's trying to work that out um so what scholars have figured out in the past, right, is that first he he employs this definition, and and some scholars will, will say right that it, it's similar to the Platonic tradition of of evil as um, like a gradated form of of non being. So like like um, evil is like you've got the hundred percent being what you should be, what is is good, and anything from that is actually being less than. And so evil mm -hmm. in that sense it does not have being. Not not to say that. You know, when someone murders someone else, something didn't happen. It's just that evil itself doesn't have its own being in this sense. Um, and, and Augustine's using that in more of a vague sense than you might get being. Uh, vague might be the right wrong term, but he's using it in a different way than you might get the term being being used. I shouldn't repeat that. <laughs> then the word being was used maybe a thousand years later um, or even now. Um, and so <clears throat> um, so he he does this. Is he say okay? Evil is not substantial. Maybe that's a better way of saying it, is evil doesn't have substance. The second thing he does is that he he roots the source of evil in the will. 
Um, and so that's the source of evil for Augustine. And in a sense, Augustine kind of, in that sense, that, that does provide us the logical understanding of how Augustine works out these two antithetical things, right? And so, and this is nothing new. Like, this isn't anything I've looked at. Um, lots of people have worked through this before me. I think in my book, I just work a little bit on um, what G.R. Evans has done with it, um, a little bit um, with some other summaries and stuff. But it's, there's, a, there's a long list of literature on Augustine on evil. Um, what I found was that I was working, as I was working through this, um, was that rhetorical economy, by providing a logical model that allows you to understand how things can be ordered, um, the things that are various and things that are good and bad, and things that are all these things, how they can be ordered together, rhetorical economy, in a sense, gives Augustine a logical model that explains a problem that comes after he solves this. So, so now that we know that this is solved, at least within his thought of, well, the source of evil is in the will and not, it's, it's not a substance thing. So when God creates everything substance, like substantially really evil really comes out of the human will. It's, it's, it's a, and it's a falling away from rather than a, a something that is itself. Um, so when you go this way, the um, this new problem is kind of introduced into his system, um, and that's this: that once you admit that there's a lack of something um, that has its source outside of God, so to speak, even if it's a lack of something that has its source outside of God, um, you have to. Uh, let's see here. Um, he needs to, I guess, then account oh. for in his system how God then remains provident over that which is not sourced from himself, if that makes sense. Because he affirms pro the providence of God. And this is kind of typical of, of theology, is that theology is, in some senses, it's an attempt, I would say like in the tradition I'm in and such, it is an attempt to explain the scriptures. Mm -hmm. But often you get something where you're like, well, you know, so like with Augustine at the time, the, the scriptures say that providence, God is provident over all things. He's omnipotent in a sense. And, and you get all these other senses there. Uh, we understand his understanding on um, uh, uh, predestination. I don't get, not to get into that, but like that's the, the part <laughs> of just providence, like it's a category yep. for him of just providence. So if he's going to affirm that and he says, well, scripture says that and it says this. And he's reading Paul and others when he says, and scripture says that the source of the evil is in the will. So it's not like he's sitting there going, I'm saying it's in the will. It's like, well, Paul's saying it uh, and others. Um, once he gets there, he's like, well, how did those two scriptural things work together? And often what, the, what theologians do is they're trying to figure out something that makes sense of these scriptural texts you have. How do you draw the picture with the dots, right? The data points that you have. How do you draw the best picture? And so philosophy, um, previous theologians, the tradition, even for Augustine, often these provide options for you to think through. Maybe this, maybe this explains it, maybe that explains it. And what I argue in the fifth chapter is that for Augustine, rhetorical economy explains mm -hmm. and kind of unties that new knot. So how is God provident over something that he is not the source of, even if it's a non-being thing, um, right? So like, how is he provident over uh, someone who chooses to murder someone else? And mm -hmm. so as I work through the chapter, it's, it's really, it's, it's, there's, there's this one part where the first part of the chapter ends with a, I believe a suggestion. Um, and it, it's, it's a little bit of a move into being like, well, we can already see rhetoric in this field because I think, right. At least it seems, and I think, I think I ended with the word suggests, right. So it's, there's not mm. enough evidence there to say that it's strongly there, but it suggests that you actually have Augustine thinking of creation and the arrangement of creation actually patterning on it on um, on Genesis, uh, his, his uh, uh, contra against the Manichees, um, mm -hmm. that he's there, that he, he actually uses two things that like, you know, arrangement really deals more with um, uh, the second principal part of rhetoric and then sometimes the third. But really what you see is inventi inventio, right, or invention or mm. creation, kind of that mapped onto God is like, well, step one, you invent the material, the stuff, and then step two, you start putting it in order that you can kind of see that at least in, in on, um, one, three, five of on Genesis against the Manichees. So I kind of do that and start with that, but you know, really the real thing I'm getting to is when you get to the reading that I do of on free choice, three, nine, 27. 
Um, and that is this idea where he's, he's working through, and I basically in there, I just do a close reading to try to show readers how he's using rhetorical concepts to therefore show that he really is mapping rhetorical economy onto this. And I think, um, in an earlier article, even a way I had described it is if, if you, if you imagine God as Homer and, and Homer is writing the Iliad, um, and Homer writes that Agamemnon um, steals, uh, and I'm, her name is, is um, uh, uh, running away from me at the moment, um, Achilles's um, prize for more, but, um, but he yeah. steals her, right? So then Achilles stops fighting. Well, I mean, Agamemnon's not the greatest king when you read the Iliad, and so Agamemnon yeah. might qualify as an evil action. Um now the source, if Homer is a person, Homer is the source, but like, oh, Homer has written this, but if you could almost get outside of it, I think what Augustine's trying to do is to get you to imagine, and Augustine doesn't talk particularly about this. I was just trying to do this as a thought experiment. So I think yeah. note of, of an earlier article said, just imagine this. Um, you almost have to imagine that Agamemnon has a free will, right? And in Agamemnon's free will, he chooses to do this. But as the choice is made, and as the things are being choice, chosen to be done, what the author then can do, and what you know, what Homer then, in that sense, can do, can immediately order it within where he wants the story to go. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. and um, and that seems to be kind of what Augustine's doing is that Augustine can you know uh, for Augustine, of course, God is provident over all things, but he can even take choices uh, that are evil choices that God clearly wouldn't want a person like wouldn't make a person make. And he takes that evil choice, that evil action, and he somehow fits it into his greater tapestry, or in this sense, his greater speech, which is all of history, or his greater book, which is all creation. Um, and he he weaves it in. And so the concept of Antipathon, for instance, is you, you almost have maybe Agamemnon do that so that you maybe can see how much better Priam is as a king, mm -hmm. right? It's because Priam then, against the backdrop of, of Agamemnon, just looks like a much better king. And, and now I'm not a, I'm not a classicist. And so some classicists might listen to this and be like, man, you do not know what you're talking about. So I am totally, please forgive me, email me. You can find my email on website. <laughs> so um, I'm happy to understand that better, but that's my small understanding of it. And if that, if that doesn't work, we can map it onto something else. But, but anytime you have, like you have, um, you know, Sauron in the Lord of the Rings exists in a sense to show you the goodness, like Gandalf looks so much better. They're both what are called Maiar. Like if, you, if you're a nerd like me and you read, it's <laughs> Maiar, um, right? But but one has gone one way and one's gone the other. Um, Saruman in particular, right, has gone one way and one's gone the other. And the, the, the badness of the fallenness of one reveals to you and actually against that backdrop, the other one shines even brighter. Um, right. And so, so we, you know, we can argue theologically about, you know, why would God do that? Why would God allow that even to happen? So we're trying, um, but Augustine seems to take it and say like, this is how it all weaves together. Augustine, yeah. So God, for Augustine, God remains provident in the way that an author would remain provident because he just takes the thing that the character, unlike Homer, the character has its own will, the character makes its choice and he just weaves it right in. Um, you know, I, I think it's, I think Adam Ployd has an article on this sum in judicial rhetoric, um, and I, I talk a little bit about judicial rhetoric in my um, in my book, but there's this also this sense of judicial rhetoric of of a rhetor actually at times has to take has to create a narrative of their own um, out of what's happened. And so you think about mm -hmm. a lawyer, right? So judicial rhetoric is just what we think of almost now as law, and so it's it's an aspect of rhetoric. And so what you have to do is you take the events as they happen, you take the facts of the case, and you weave them together into a narrative and of course narrative mm -hmm. right if you're cicero you're trying to get Caelius off you know off of, yep. of his case but you weave them into a narrative that is beneficial to you but you're actually mm -hmm. weaving actions that someone else did of their own free will and you're trying to weave that into a narrative that makes sense that's even more maybe in a sense like what augustine's trying to do when he's talking about like, is that is a, that also can be called right? Like it, it, that can be an economia that can be the weaving mm -hmm. together of the text into something, um, in that sense. So in that sense, the text would be the the speech you're going to give, or the defense the defense speech, or the prosecutorial speech. Um, and so and so that really seems to do it. And it was it was funny because it was just an aha moment for me when I was reading. I was like, oh yeah, no, 
oh wow like that's just that's just, that's that's just it's just this logical model and so a lot of times folks are like well, what does it mean what does it do and you're like well to understand what it means and what it does you just have to understand that a lot of times patristic authors and especially augustine because i know him better than the other authors um he's trying to explain how these scriptures go together and sometimes the bridge uh, between them is just a logical model that you find you know um so like like um you might find plato's concept of evil is as not substantial you know and you, you could use that or incorporate that um you know we see in aquinas we see aquinas with the rediscovery of aristotle um, using Aristotle in a way, I don't think Aquinas in any way is sitting there saying, I want Aristotle to override the scripture. I think he's saying, well, we got these scriptures and we're trying to explain them. And there's some gaps and Aristotle helps us to fill in the gaps or helps us to explain like, what's the thread that holds this together. And, and this, mm -hmm. this logical model, you know, certain logical models can help to create that. Um, uh, what, what am I thinking with that? Like, for instance, if you study um, uh, doctrine of the Trinity, if any of the listeners have studied doctrine of the Trinity, um, you know, if, if you read uh, Lewis Ayers' book, like really you need to be reading some of the background of what's going on between Nicaea and Constantinople. You need to read what's going on in 362 and Senate of Alexandria. And you need to read this stuff. And you need to, you know, realize like they're struggling like hypostasis, right? Like, like a mm -hmm. term that, that the scripture doesn't usually, in fact, unless I'm wrong, it's, forgive me, it's a vacation day today, but I don't believe scripture ever uses the term hypostasis. And, and it, it doesn't use it in that way. It doesn't does use it in that use way. It. Well, and then you get Sicilianism yeah. that had used hypostasis yeah. in a way yeah. that had been deemed heretical. And so yeah. you get in this sense of like, how do we do this? How do we do that? But then they're like, okay, we're going to just by hypostasis, we're going to mean this. But then they, they start working down this road. If, if you've read Ayers, you get down this road and kind of the last knot they have to unwind before in 381, they can make sense of things is um you know what, what Ayers has named um inseparable right um operations of the trinity like how does how do all three act in even every one action that one does especially when you see things like um the baptism of christ things where it seems like they're all mm -hmm. doing separate things you know how do you work that together and basil has one answer and gregor nissa has another but you have to kind of get how inseparable operations work to answer a question about that that helps you thus explain when the scriptures seem to portray especially John Seems, one yeah. with the Patricia's like when John one portrays Christ as God, there yeah. is one God and Christ, you know, and, and so you, you know, and the son or the word, right. The word is also God, but there's one God. And so you're trying to explain scriptures, but these logical models sometimes help you. And so really yeah. with, with rhetoric, that's what I was looking for is, is just, are they losing rhetoric at times? Is Augustine using rhetoric the same way, that most authors that we might see might use um, uh, philosophy. And to add to that, Augustine's from this camp that's more like from Cicero's camp that probably comes more from maybe Isocrates in a sense, um, where in a sense, the rhetor is not um, a sophist. The rhetor is does mm -hmm. philosophy, who loves wisdom and does all of the hard work of learning what is true and good. And then for Cicero, then turns around and having now determined what is the good, then turns around and kind of unlike Plato's person in the Republic or in Plato's, you know, polis, but in his Republic, doesn't just go off by themselves and gaze at the goodness, but instead turns around and then uses it for the Republic, right? For the good yeah. by trying to convince people to come to the better. The rhetoric yeah. is just the way at which you take words and you accommodate them once you've discovered what the good is you accommodate them to others to persuade them to the better and then augustine famously if you study his homiletical strategy takes cicero's concept and i might have mentioned this in the first half and just switches it and so he, he augustine takes it and then just switches it to the soul like once once you've done the philosophy and understood what is good and for the christian that's understanding what the scriptures mean you then take that and you try to seduce the soul to something that is better um, that's what mm -hmm. preaching is. And so Augustine might yeah. take Cicero on that. And so for Augustine, he's in this camp where I don't think rhetoric is really so much split from philosophy. It's a tool, yeah. usually a tool of communication, but it's like step two in this two-step process. So whereas we want to separate and we're like, okay, we're going to do all our rhetoric stuff over here and all of our philosophy stuff over here. That is more like, you know, Plato, maybe when you read Gorgias, at least, because I know Plato, there's a different Plato sometimes, and Plato's thought's different. But when you read Gorgias, you have Plato, you know, probably presenting like, a, well, you know, rhetoric's not very good. Um, although I, I, I should say Kevin Corrigan, I, I know Kevin, and Kevin's 
pretty convinced that Plato leaves open that there can be a true and good rhetoric. So I want to say that and I'm actually, when, whenever he's here with me, I'm convinced of it, but he, cause he knows more of it than I do. And so I'm like, Oh yeah, that does sound right. Uh, but I can't, I can't, you know, uh, reproduce what he says, but because of that, I think what you've got is, is for Augustine, it's all just together. It's, it, it's, it's all yep. like, like part of rhetoric is, um, philosophy. And I think if I'm not wrong, I think it's Isocrates that actually never calls rhetoric rhetoric. He calls it philosophy. And then, you know, mm -hmm. you've got Cicero who is, is pretty grounded in stoic philosophy and, and writes, you know, his, you know, on friendship and he's writing these things, but the very act of writing something is rhetoric. Right. And, right. Um, and he famously goes to someone other than the stoics to learn rhetoric because he doesn't think stoic rhetoric is very helpful. Um, and so, um, so, so I think just for Augustine in his mind, it's all together. And I think for us in our specialized university world, it's separated. And so sometimes we have to work. And so to me, at least it was fun when I started reading more rhetoric, discovering a couple patterns that I was like, oh, this pattern looks exactly like what Augustine's doing here. And so yeah. when you read, um, and it's funny because there's a few places I'll say like, hey, it is here. And it's in Plato. Like you can also see this, like in certain philosophers, when they say this and this, like you know, the the the, the idea of a general can get the view. I, I, and I can't remember if that was the one for philosophy, or you've got the the De Architectura. Um, so even uh, with that, you've got that from um, uh, I think it's Vitruvius uh, that you have in there that's talking about like you know, like like ordering architecture. So Augustine will talk about a temple and like the statue doesn't understand why the statue's placed where the statue's placed. Actually yeah. doesn't see the whole temple, but the architect sees it all and understands why all of it is where it is. You know, the general sees why it's all there. And so both in Quintilian rhetoric and in lots and lots of philosoph philosophers that you read from the ancient world, they'll talk about the body and the unity of the body and the structure of the body. And so I, I have had some folks when I've been talking to them, they'll say, well, yeah, yeah, but that's in philosophy. And you're like, yeah, that too. Like it's, it's in both, but Augustine actually sometimes uses language. that's much closer to the rhetorical stuff, which would make sense. Cause he's, you know, he's, he's doing philosophy, but he's also highly trained in rhetoric and he's making his money doing that. Um, and so, um, so yeah, sorry, I just kind of gave a lot there, but I hope, I hope that. Well, that's no, that's, it's very, yeah, it's very helpful. Um, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I mean, one, I had a few different things as you were going, like just biblically, uh, it felt like when you were talking about, you know, order, fittingness, how God responds to our will, um, all I could think of was one of my favorite quotes from the end of the, the um, Joseph cycle in Genesis, what, what man intended for harm, God intended for good. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, and so there's sort of just like, how, how is it that, you know, both of those things can be true? Um, yeah. Because sometimes on a logical level that, you know, or like, if you're if you're trying to do a certain kind of like logical level that feels like how can both of those things be true um and and uh you know that's what augustine is trying to answer um yeah well and for him it's all aptum it's 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 all yeah. like and he'll use different words when he's going through there and there there are words that can be used philosophically the words that are also used in the rhetorical tradition but it's all fitting and and i, I feel like yeah. that's a like that's a hill he's gonna die he'd, he'd be willing to die on if he was here with us but he's, he would also just quickly follow it up by saying, and we just can't see it. Um, yeah. And, and that's where he gets into, I believe it's um, De Musica, which comes up in, in one of the earlier chapters that was one of the more interesting reads for me to just kind of really get into how foot and feet like work together and stuff is when he's really just doing that, he's, he's bringing some theology into his writing on music, especially when you get into the later books. Um, and he'll talk about how like, we're just a syllable in time. Uh -huh. right? And so if you think about a syllable, like um, if you just take your favorite song and just sing it through and then just stop on one syllable, like imagine there's nothing. And then there's just that one syllable. Like if that syllable was self-aware and I, this probably sounds weird, but this is kind of where I think he's going is like if that syllable was self-aware. It'd be like, well, I don't understand why this, like, why am I here? Why am I this yeah. note? Why does it go this way? Yeah. But it's like the syllable has to come into existence and die for the, re and he actually says die so that the rest of it can keep playing out and you don't judge the whole thing until you get to the end. And then you look at the yeah. whole song and you go, wow, from beginning to end. Wow. That's a beautiful song. Whereas if you yeah. heard one note and you were to judge one note, like a la, like, like it's like, well, was that a beautiful song or not? Like, we don't know. Like, how could you? Know? Yeah. That's also, um, 
Yeah, that's ba- oh, right. Isn't that Ecclesiastes three where they use the tapestry image, sort of? Um, and it's sort of like you know, it, it's uh, it's almost like you know, we don't get uh, we don't get to see it from the perspective of of. Uh, you know, the person who's creating the tapestry. Um, And we're just like an individual string in the tapestry. We don't know why our color contrasts with the others or fits with the others or. Yeah. Well, and Augustine will also use it to talk about like moments in time. Like, like think about the best day you've ever had that you're like, as humans, we want it to stay. And he's like, but that's ridiculous. Like, like you don't want the same syllable to stay for in your time. So he'll actually use analogies for multiple things. Uh, when he's talking about our metaphors, if we want to say that instead, just depending on how the ancient world wanted to break it up, but he, he'll use them. He even say different things, but yeah, like, like as a statue in a, in a temple, I might not understand why, um, you know, I, I, I'm from a lower middle class family. I grew up digging ditches, you know, um, I, my, my students always find that funny, but it's like, I think they assume cause, um, I teach, I adjunct sometimes at Candler now and they're like, Oh, well, you're at Emory. Like you clearly grew up with like, more and it's just like oh no 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 like i i was in a ditch like <laughs> that's what i was but there are moments i've even asked in my own life you know god why if 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 i have like i just love reading theology i love reading like i love reading latin i love doing all this stuff you know why was i in a world where like the school i went to didn't do latin um i had great teachers we just they didn't have latin we didn't do classics in a sense you know we had one class called classics but it's not what you think of in like a british sense of classics so a lot of this reading i've done on my own or i didn't graduate school and later um and so you, you, you know, why? And I could drive myself crazy going, why? And, and, and Augustine will just say, well, you just, there's a reason because the, the scriptures tell us that God never, like God doesn't do anything without a reason. Like, and, and God, mm. you know, with, with a good reason, right. And, and, yeah. and all that. Um, in fact, there's this, and I wish I could remember exactly where it is. Um, you might remember, but when he talks about frogs and he just, he talks about frogs and he's like, I just can't. I cannot figure out why frogs exist because they're such a nuisance for him, right? Like, I guess we wouldn't think of them that way, but if you don't have thresholds in your doors, um, you know, it's like them hopping in your house. And we actually did have a house at one point that they were coming up through the, um, golly, I can't remember how they were getting in there. I think we finally found like a small hole in like the ceiling or something, but we would just come up and our daughters were living upstairs in this attic area. I mean, it was nice, but it had its own bathroom. But every now and then we hear a shriek because they'd be in the shower and they'd be like a tree frog on the side, you know? <laughs> and, and, and now with modern understanding of biology, like we understand like why the dung beetle, why the mosquito, yeah. I, I suppose. But I, I tend to think of like mosquitoes, like why mosquitoes? Um, right, is right. there a better way God could have done that? But Augustine's whole point is like, well, if you look at it all, like clearly it's broken yeah. now. Like, like the world has fallen. The creation has fallen in a sense. But, but when it's created, everything has a function and a, for, and a, and a purpose. Um, and so Augustine just believes that. And so he's going to work through this idea where it's like, well, everything, if we could step back and see it all, it makes sense. And so if you presume that, then you can take rhetorical economy and match it onto almost anything and say, well, you know, if you look at it in the whole, everything's been economically arranged. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I know, uh, I don't think you'll, you'll like this, but also (laughs) it did remind me, like I was an undergrad philosophy major and so it's been a long time, but it also sounds, it sort of sounded like what you were describing though, when you used your Agamemnon example, uh, was, um, was middle knowledge, Molinism. Um, um, and I, I know, I don't mean to, uh, say that that's your reading of Augustine, but the way that that came out, I was like, that sounds like how, yeah. Uh, if I remember my undergrad philosophy correctly. (laughs) And I'm not meaning to say, and I, I, you know, I probably need to look into it more to see it because not to say that Augustine couldn't be doing something, um, wrong. Like Augustine, I'm not saying is inspired the same way that other people might be inspired when, you know, they write. And Augustine would say that he's not, you know, inspired the same way He, he writes with error. Um, but, but usually, and I should, that's a, this is a good chance to clarify that, that that's just my, like, it's kind of like this. But that's yeah, not, no, I, I know, I, I know. <laughs> that's just my like. I yeah. think this is the best way I can get it across without it being for perfect. So it's kind of like this. Um, so I, I should, I should, uh, if if I said it more strongly earlier, I should back off and say that I didn't mean to say it that strongly. So usually I say it's similar to this, but this is the best. This is the best example no, I can you, come up with because he never gives an example really of yeah. how that might work. He just kind of talks. Again, I don't mean to accuse you of being a bad scholar. It was just like that was just it went pinged in my head. I was like, oh, well, okay. it's, it's, uh, it's, it's also where Augustine believes that 
as the human is making the choice in the moment that, that, that God is not passive really. Like, so even when I say yeah. words like allow, which I know I said earlier, like that's one of those things you have to be careful of is like, well, in our understanding, we say words like allow, but I think Augustine would say like, God is making an active choice to let that person make choices. But that yeah. person is choosing what they want to choose. And God is letting them choose what they want to choose. And it's, but there's like an action in there. It's not like just this passive, like, well, let's kind of let them do whatever. Um, there's yeah. an action in there. Yeah, not the deism, yeah. Other, I, I don't think this solves the odyssey, right? Like, yeah. like, I, I, one of my professors used to always say, um, there are many explanations for theodicy. None of them are pleasing. Like none of them are fully yeah. pleasing or no, fully satisfying, I think the way he would say yeah. it, which I, which I would agree with. And I think Augustine would agree with too, because we're statues in one part of the temple, we're syllables in the song. We don't get it all on top of the fact right. that we have limited knowledge revealed to us in Augustine's model, that there's been limited knowledge revealed to us. We have fallen, um, we have a fallen ability to understand it even, right? So after the, after yeah. the fall... Um, and so we're broken in a sense that way too. Whereas, um, uh, yeah, so it's, it's, um, so yeah, but no, I, I can get where you're going. Even when I was explaining it earlier, I was like, I, I probably need to be more careful about how I explain this. No, 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 I don't, I don't think on, I don't think on this podcast, someone's going to like, you know, call, call your book into question or something. But, uh, but I, I, I also, I really appreciated how yeah, you brought in like, you know, again, like just thinking it's, it's been so long, but like thinking about so soft sophists versus rhetors and like that, you know, like that's a, you know, it's a helpful contrast, uh, you know, where, uh, or like just to think about, you know, like, I mean, you know, again, I'm sort of going back to my undergrad days where you didn't want to be the sophist, get that out of here. Uh, we're philosophers. Yeah. Uh, and, <laughs> but, but then, you know, by the time that I was doing, you know, the PhD work, I was like really fascinated by rhetoric. And so what is the difference there? And I think you, you, you highlighted that well. Um, and so how, and how, what is the connection between all of those? Um, and it's a continuous conversation. Um, so I thought, I thought that was very, uh, elucidating. Well, um, I think, you know, this has been extremely helpful, um, and that puts us right about an hour, which is usually how long my author interviews go. Um, so is there, I mean, I, you know, uh, I usually, I like to give my uh, guests the last word. Uh, is there, you know, anything else that you'd like to, uh, to, to say on Augustine and the fittingness of rhetoric or, or even, you know, was it uh, like how it was uh, beneficial to you personally? I, I don't know where, where you'd like to end on, but yeah, no, it, um, I, I think like, so, so for me as a practicing Christian, of course, when I'm reading stuff like this, um, I, like I said, maybe toward the beginning of this half, like I am kind of looking yeah. for at times, like what's a better interpretation. I'm, I'm not treating it, you know, as a scholar, I kind of at times have to be like, well, I'm, I'm this isn't devotional, but there are moments that things mm -hmm. strike me and it's just like, wow, like that's actually a really good interpretation of scripture or, or one I need to think through and chew on a bit. Cause I've just never heard it presented this way. Uh, and so I think there's some texts in there that are fascinating. I do think it's an interesting way if you're part of a denomination or a, a Christian tradition that does affirm providence to try to understand um, how God puts this all together, even pastorally, as I've spoken to some friends of mine that are pastors, they've actually kind of used this in their own lives, in their own ministries. They're kind of talking through folks and with folks like, you know, why might this thing be happening right now? Um, yes, it might be happening and it's unfortunate it might be happening um, and, and not in a way to minimize because I want to be sensitive to that right now, but just to kind of help folks get an idea of like, hey, it's okay. You don't have the perspective to understand everything. Um, yeah. And, and so I think for some reason, in a sense, like rhetorical economy kind of helps them pull together you know, just kind of like it does for Augustine, like here's the logic behind how these verses, how these theological concepts we're working with fit together. Is that from God's point of mm -hmm. view, being the author who's outside of time, as time's unwinding, he's unwinding it and it will all make sense. And it might not be even in this lifetime when you understand why it all makes sense. You know, you can see that in Augustine's confessions with some of the stuff yeah. it feels like, you know, he gives you a sense that the only time you might understand it is looking backward. Um, but even then you don't fully always understand um, um, why that's the case. So, so I think that was, um, helpful for me. I mean, I would encourage if anybody is out there, um, you know, it, it, I think, you know, where my epilogue goes is it's just like, you know, you know, Cameron's done work on this. Dodaro's done work on this. Ployd's done work on this. Um, Raphael, um, uh, I can't, if, if, if he ever hears this, forgive me. I, uh, I think it's T-O-C-Z-K-O, Toxco, um, 
Uh, it's, it's a name I don't know how to pronounce. Um, uh, you know, there's, there's, and there's many other authors I haven't mentioned that have started to pick up on this. Uh, and of course, there's a, a large amount of literature on how this has affected his scriptural hermeneutic and how it's affected, how rhetoric affected his, um, his homiletics. Um, and, and not that scriptural hermeneutic isn't part of your theology, but, but when you're thinking like, um, again, I, I need a better word than substance, but like the substance of how he's thinking through things like creation and, and these different aspects of his doctrine. I, it just seems to me, um, and in the epilogue, what I get to is just, it seems to me like based on the work of all these other scholars, what they've done and now what I've seen, I think it's just a rich place for people that are looking to do more research to help us understand better what Augustine was saying uh, and what Augustine was doing, because it's uh, even if it's not at a conscious level, it's very much has to be kind of at a subconscious level um, for him. And, you know, I can't remember if I mentioned this in my the first podcast, but I used to work for this organization um, where I would do stuff with teenagers and I was speaking in front of teenagers a lot, um, a lot weekly, if, if not more for years and years and years. Uh, before I went to finally do my second master's and then to go to uh, the PhD. And what I found is in my teaching, even without thinking about it, sometimes I'll process things the way I did back then, or I'll think, you know, like, oh, hey, you know, a good way to get this idea across is to use this thing that I've never seen a professor use, but I've done before this way. Like, it, it just is funny um, because it's just, it, it, I don't even think about it. It's just something that just pops up. It's just there. And maybe later I'll be like, oh, yeah, I used to do that when I was working for that organization or, you know, it went really well when I did it this way. And then I just I just change it for what I'm trying to do here. Um, I, I think, you know, that's just again, that's just me talking more the homiletic style, um, if, if yeah. the teaching style. But I, I think it can affect other aspects of your thought. And I do think there's um, I think there's a lot of of work to be done to kind of figure out all these things that are there. And I feel like, like at least my work just hit the tip of the tip of the iceberg of one thing. Um, you know, I, I, I even thought about it, one of my members of my uh, committee, cause this, this is based on my dissertation research. Um, chapter five initially, originally was going to be on like a reading of confessions to show how Augustine uses rhetorical economy through confessions. And um, he said, well, um, I will happily in a year um, take your, um, uh, uh, I'll happily in a year. I think he said, um, how do you phrase, he phrased it really funny. Uh, it, it was good nature, but it was like, I'll, I'll accept your admittance of defeat in a year when you decide that that's just way too much to do in one chapter. And I think he was right. So I'm not sure I'll ever get to it. But at one point I thought, you know, that'd be like a standalone project, probably 70 pager where you just kind of work through it. Um, so I think there's just a lot, even with what I did, a lot to be done, a lot to work through. Um, to help us understand Augustine better and, and why I understand Augustine better. Well, you know, at least for the Christian to better understand the Bible better. Um, but also because Augustine after Paul and before Aquinas in the Western tradition, at least is probably the most influential interpreter of scripture um, from that period. Not, not that everything he says is, is there, but just very, very influential. And so we use, whether you realize it or not, you use paradigms that he either, uh, coined the phrase or he had borrowed it for someone else, but people learned it from him or he, he started with something that became something else um, and came through that way. So I think it's very important um, that we keep understanding him uh, as well as other people that are part of the tradition that we are, um, that we're in, at least those of us who are yeah. practicing Christians. But hey, thank you uh, so much. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I just, it was, was just really touched and humbled that anybody even ever paid attention to all the work I did. And it was just, um, just warmed my heart. I was like, oh, you know, somebody's read it and, and, and they wanted to talk about it. And I appreciate you letting me um, uh, take some time just to chat about this. So thank you so much. Well, Brian, thank you for being on A History of Christian Theology. Thank you.